0: The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please
1: visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hello, I'm Thomas Salerno and you're listening to The Secrets of Fantasia, the 1940 Walt Disney classic that combines the best of concert and cinema to create an unforgettable experience. And joining me today on the panel are Catherine Laffrey. Hello, Catherine. Hello. And Victor Lambs. Hello, Victor.
0: Hey, we're not talking about Fantasia Burino, the American Idol contestant. What?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: That's funny because today I was looking up like gifts for Fantasia and like half of them were her.
0: (laughs) Sorry to derail you there. No, that's
1: fine. (laughs) Half the fun of this show is, I think, being derailed on stuff. But be sure to follow us on The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on your podcast app of choice. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. And also you can follow along with the show on the StarQuest YouTube channel. And please do us a favor by sharing the podcast with your friends because we've got a lot of great movies and shows to discuss coming up very soon. And you can follow along on social media where we are at Facebook.com slash Media or on X, as we're now calling it, where we are at SQPN, or on Instagram, where we are at StarQuest Network. I don't know why it didn't occur to me to talk about Fantasia on this show earlier, but I just had Fantasia on the mind recently, and I'm like, you know what, That it, this is a good excuse as any to watch this movie again, because Fantasia was on in my home a lot when I was a kid. I think my mom knew that if she needed me to sit down and be quiet, she could just put the VHS for Fantasia in and have two hours where she could go and do something else while I would be transfixed on the TV. But I haven't watched it a lot as an adult as much as I did as a kid. And I really wanted to rectify that. But yeah, what are you what's your guys history with Fantasia? Have any of you seen it? In theaters since, because I know it was obviously it was in theaters since nineteen in nineteen forty when it was made, but it's made the rounds since then a few times, right?
0: Yeah, I saw it. I think for the first time in the theaters in the mid nineteen eighties. I think around nineteen eighty five. My grandmother was an artist, an oil painter, and did a lot of paintings with mystical and religious themes, and so she took me to see it. And it, it just blew my mind as a kid. I remember my dad talking about trying to go see the 1969 release at the state theater in Ann Arbor. At that time, Disney was building it as a, billing it as a psychedelic experience. And he said the, the smoke of undetermined substance in the theater was so thick that he couldn't see the screen. So he left, (laughs) but yeah. And then when Fantasia 2000 came out. I think it was a double bill with Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 at one of the IMAX theaters um, in 1999, I think it was. And I saw it again then. But yeah, I hadn't seen it in 24 years. And coming back to it now, it's one of those things where you always pick up something new when you watch it again.
2: Yeah, it's been part of my art life long as i can remember i remember seeing bits of it in science class in elementary school when we had to learn about dinosaurs because they used to put out the shorts for that (laughs) and then um i'm sure i don't remember right off the hand when but i'm sure i saw it in the 80s because i any time disney got re-released i had to go watch it i used my little sister as an excuse to go with me i was in high school then in art class so big influence on me as an artist Just seeing all this. and I love the fact now that I can stream it and just stop and enjoy it frame by frame.
1: I know, right? I was actually doing, I did that several times during my latest rewatch of just stopping and just staring at the screen. I'm like going, wow, this is, is just beautiful. Some of the animation, I don't know a whole ton about the technical side of animation, but I'm thinking to myself, this was 1940." And the stuff they were accomplishing (laughs) and the stuff they were accomplishing here is just spellbinding.
2: Yeah. My DVD version, the 60th anniversary edition, they had tons of interviews with the animators from Fantasia. Oh my gosh. They are like my go-to guys to listen to talk about art. They're incredible, but listening to, I don't know if it was Ollie or one of the other ones talking about how it's 24 frames per second and each frame to go from the original concept art. To all the layers of the cells was hours or days of work with probably up to 20 people working on it because you had specialists doing airbrushing and dry brushing and all that to get all the effects that happened. So it's just amazing how many hours went into this.
0: Yeah. And from the technical side, too, Walt Disney, of course, had very talented artists, but he also had very talented engineers who were inventing basically new ways to film animation and new ways to film cinema. One of his great contributions was the multi-plane camera where you could layer up all of those individual cells. So you look at one frame, you're like, oh, that's a drawing someone drew. No, actually, it's seven drawings <laughs> that probably, like you said, 20 or 100 people drew. And that's how you're able to do like the, the push-ins and pull-outs through the and all the parallax that that scrolling and stuff that, that he was known for. But yeah, I wanted to pause frame by frame, but I was watching it with my My 10-year-old, and he was just spellbound. It's the first time watching it all the way through, and he was just spellbound through the whole thing, so I didn't want to interrupt that. But this is, just from a color theory perspective, any frame of this, you could pause and take the colors just out of that frame and build a brand or a design just around the colors in that one frame.
2: And the matching of the color with the sound. Yeah. Just, like, oh my gosh, they do the best color, sound, magic ever to affect the mood and to get you to understand. When they have those deep tones and the deep reds and purples, and it just heightens everything. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, I don't know if if, if uh, synesthesia was an official diagnosis at the time, but it's pretty obvious that a lot of people who have those perceive colors as sounds or sounds as colors, it's pretty clear they
1: had <laughs> quite a few. Oh, like,
2: <laughs> I am one of those people. <laughs> I've actually heard a tree sing in the fall.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> I seem to associate numbers with different colors. So that, that
0: could be a form of it, yeah. too. But yeah, you could tell that obviously some people working on it where and when it came out, not everyone was a fan going back through through some of my books. I did find uh, an anecdote that Frank Lloyd Wright, at some point in 1938 or 1939, when it was coming together, visited Walt Disney and his studios, and Walt Disney very excitedly showed off what this concept he was working on of like setting these emotion you know, and animations to music. And Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, was disgusted. He th- <laughs> thought that you should not at all be setting music to; to it would detract too much from the music. And so he recommended that Walt Disney take a long vacation and reconsider his plans.
1: <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> That's the story. And that was and at the time it came out that was common complaint too. It's just that oh the visuals are taking away too much from the music, which now that seems very quaint. We understand that visuals and music work together in cinema, but This wasn't too, this wasn't too many years after the introduction of sound in cinema and not too many years after the introduction of color into cinema too. I, one reviewer at the time, and I can't remember which publication it was, but she was so overwhelmed by this and felt that it was like brutalistic. Like she was being assaulted by these colors and sounds and actually walked out. Wow. Yeah.
2: Can you imagine what it was like going into one of those theaters for the first time that had Dozens of extra speakers no one had ever experienced before and just get overwhelmed by the sound. Yeah, I could see that probably throwing someone a little sideways.
1: I don't think anything like this had ever been attempted.
0: No, and and you mentioned, Catherine, the extra speakers. Disney actually had people working on surround sound for the first time, Fanta sound, specifically for this. They'd go into the theaters and, like you said, add in all the extra speakers. At one point, he wanted sense like, <laughs> smells. Yeah. Smell-o-vision! <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wanted smell-o-vision at one point. And, uh, yeah, it was incredible, just the resources and, and the people and the workers that were
1: all thrown at this project. You get the idea, listening to some of the things they say at the beginning of the movie, that Disney didn't mean for this movie to be a one-off, that it was supposed no. to be the beginning of a whole new genre of cinema, essentially.
0: Yeah, and, uh, again, this wasn't a commercial success at the time and there's a number of factors for that basically the entire european market had been cut off by the war yeah. at the time so you're missing out there but yeah and then they did revisit it with in the mid to late 40s with the make mine music and melody time mm-hmm. but those were more around like popular music of like the andrew sisters and definitely not at this scale
1: yeah. I'm glad I went back. And it just, for yeah. me, like I said, it was on so often when I was a kid that it, it, it was more of a, it wasn't, I wasn't just experiencing the movie. I was also experiencing those kind of n- nostalgic memories of just being a kid and just having this movie on. When I never became like a music person, despite how often I watched this movie. Okay. I, in high school, I did a, we had a Gregorian chant scola. And that's the only music thing I've ever been, like, associated with. But I, I, even without knowing really anything about music or about color theory or anything like that, I could just appreciate how stunningly just beautiful this movie is. And just the genius of people, not just Walt Disney, but his entire team. He must have just assembled the absolute best artists and filmmakers in the world to do this. Yeah,
0: I I can't speak for how it was to work for him. I have yeah, the impression was a, a it wasn't a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the results speak for themselves. Just in terms of the movie itself, the framing device that we're introduced to I think is very effective. The movie opens and we're not immediately thrown into the world of animation. we get the curtain opening if if I recall and we get the orchestra tuning up. Yeah. For a good solid minute, maybe longer of just the various we're introduced to the various instruments. And it's all, I can't imagine just how amazing this must have looked, too. Was it Kodak Color or Technicolor? Color. Just the, yeah, the lights, the different colored gels shining on the different members of the orchestra.
2: That warm-up took me yeah. right back to high school symphony band. When ah. oh, we put on our tuxedos and get ready to do a big concert. And, yeah, you're, you're sitting That's on the stage cool. and you're supposed to warm up. and Oh, yeah. Or just even going to the, the Detroit Symphony as a kid. And hearing the band warm up and the symphony warm up. And you're like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Just the warm up was amazing.
0: <laughs> and, and we come back to it too after the intermission and it has like a little fun spin put on it. But yeah, it's very, it's, it draws you in. And then the first person we, we really see is Deems Taylor, who was a 20th century composer and music critic, wrote a lot about music when he addresses the audience, us and, and tells us wh- what we're about to see which I thought was really cool. And he's there to before each piece say, okay, here's what you're going to see in this piece so that when well, you do I... see it, you're like,
2: oh, yeah. yeah which is funny as an artist. The more abstract things get, the more you have to explain them. <laughs> if a picture's supposed to say a thousand words and you got to add a thousand words to explain your picture, you might be mm-hmm. going off the deep end.
1: And the first segment is pretty much all abstractions, right? It's box. deep. Yeah, as he calls it,
0: absolute music. Absolute
1: yeah, comes, music, yeah.
0: Yeah, he comes up with this framework at the beginning, which I'm not familiar with. There's representational art and then, like you say, abstract art. And so he's acting as our concert program. You would yeah. here, Oh, this is about the centaurs and the Pegasus. Okay, and how long is this one? Okay, it's over when Zeus does this, that sort of thing. But yeah, go go ahead yeah because we we're, we're thrown into it and we don't see any animation for the first 8 minutes. Yeah. yeah.
1: And the the first bit it's box, toccata and fugue in D minor, which I've always associated this music with either Dracula or Phantom of the Opera. It just seems to be like culturally associated with those two figures that do famous thing, but it's, I for some reason my brain completely forgot it was in Fantasia. And so I was pleasantly surprised by that.
0: (laughs) It's the warm-up. It's definitely the the warm-up act here, but it's as a keyboard player, it's very fun piece to play. Most of Bach is just fun to play because once you get it under your fingers, the way your fingers move, you could tell Bach was a keyboard player himself. The way your fingers move, it's just very like satisfying and, and gratifying. But yeah, as you say, it's been used all over. Gyrus, the Konami video game from the 80s, used it heavily, but we're definitely into just the orchestra, the lights, and then things start to get a little weird.
2: Yeah. They actually, what, tried to bring in, is it Oscar Fishinger As inspiration? And they just, I guess he's out there as far as his abstraction. That's why Dean talked about geometric shapes and color, because that's all that guy did. But Disney knew that would be a little too far out there. So you get the strings of the instruments floating by or the bow of the violins dancing along the clouds. Because you can't just throw people into abstraction because you you, you get lost. Like you said, this yeah. is absolute music for music's sake or art for art's sake. What's a pretty selfish mode to be in because you yeah. don't care about your viewer or listener when you're going that abstract because you're not trying to bring them to something more. You're just, oh, this is what I decided was beautiful kind of thing. But I thought, I liked how Disney did a blend where it's a more dreamlike, a little more surreal.
0: Yeah, we get the swooping, like you mentioned, the, the bows of the instruments all kind of marching along. And I, I love how every time a note is added, like a bow is added. And then they just like dive bomb through the clouds. And then we get some really cool things where you could tell it was maybe filmed and the artists were, were using the reference. But of the strings of the instruments on the bridges, like rotating and coming at you in 3d -hmm. and i don't think disney would do something this kind of 3d until maybe like the great mouse detective in the 80s where they were actually like hand drawing over computer generated cells but it's very effective and i read that walt disney and who knows how serious he was he actually wanted to make this like a 3d movie with the glasses and everything at one point, yeah, obviously they probably scrapped that pretty early on. But it's really stunning because you're not really expecting anything from the 1940s to have that amount of like perspective and 3D and and stuff.
2: The amount of work that the animators do, looking at and filming real things to get their ideas yeah. for any cloud or smoke effect. I guess they said that they were out in the lot playing with blowing things up or burning things in trash cans, <laughs> and just getting different. They would take like high contrast footage. And then work on colorizing that to be a layer of one of the layers within each like cell of the movie.
0: Yeah, that later on, I think in the right of Spring, when they're like doing some of the evolution things and they're doing like the kind of wash, like billowy kind of dust cloud effect and stuff. And you're like, okay, that isn't drawn. That's film that Mm -hmm. they've colored. But yeah, this now you can think of it as like a visualizer. Ever since the days of early Windows, we've had music visualizers where you play your MP3 or WMA files. And it draws lines on the screen and stuff. And I'm surprised maybe somebody's done it. I spent a a lot of time kind of playing around with those from a software perspective in the late 90s. But I'm surprised no one has actually, like, recreated the Fantasia Bach Toccata, if you can D minor, as a visualizer for your own music. That might be a fun programming project
1: for somebody. And the next section is more of music that I guess more people would know. It's the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky. Before we jump
2: ahead. There's one yeah. thing. There's a Catholic reference that we need to get to in the images oh. of Takada, and it was partway through when you start hearing these crescendos of sound, and you'll get these bright images coming up, and they're Gothic arches. Oh right. yeah, the stained glass windows. and they're showing them in in groups of three, so we're yep. getting that strong trinitarian reference there's all these little moments of that where what art is really supposed to do is point you to that source of beauty and it's you can't get away from it you can try to be as abstract as you want mm-hmm. but you get those yeah. elements in there and it's there's a source of beauty and just seeing leopold with his hands just throwing those up into the air was awesome
0: oh yes we should mention leopold as as well leopold uh just leopold's
2: yeah. Stokowski.
1: Stokowski. Stokowski yeah. Yes. Sorry. The conductor. Easy for you to say.
2: Yeah. Yes, yeah
0: yes. The conductor. But yeah, he actually, when he first Walt Disney reached out to him, he reached out to Walt Disney. He said he was, he would do it for free. That's not what they agreed on. They agreed on several <laughs> tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for his involvement. But yeah. And so, of course, he walks out and I, I turned to my 10 year old. I'm like, when that Bugs Bunny cartoon where we're they're all going like,
2: Leo. Oh yeah. Oh, that's him. Yes. It was only eight years later that they
0: did that. Yeah. So obviously a very conscious Fantasia reference on there.
1: (laughs) I'm sure all these animators were just like, always wanted to reference one another's work. I'm sure they were all fans of what each other was doing. One thing I wasn't aware of is that the, our, I'm forgetting his name already, our our guide. Deems Taylor? Deems Taylor, yeah. He says, nobody performs the Nutcracker Ballet nowadays. And I'm like, that's news to me. I'm like, really?
0: I think Fantasia may have changed may have that. Changed, uh, may have been the thing yeah. that
1: brought it back. Yeah, because we have the Nutcracker Suite, which I guess is like a medley of some of the more famous pieces of the... Because it's a lengthy ballet, I'm sure, but...
0: Yeah, the Nutcracker Suite, I think, is when she's being presented by the gifts or something, and everybody's bringing out their presents, and the presents are all these, like, ethnic types doing their dances.
1: Yeah, because there's, there's... The different dances have names. I actually saw this when I was like, looking. There's, like, the... There's the Russian dance, there's the Chinese dance,
0: there's the Arab dance, which we get a sexy goldfish.
1: Oh that yeah, that's part of oh, that yeah. that <laughs> the Arab dance. Yeah, that was weird <laughs> because
0: it's supposed to be like a veil dance, like the dance of the seven veils, where the fish's tail is the is the veils. It doesn't really work that well. I think it's the only part of the opening that that doesn't work for me, but. We get the fairy sprites of the different seasons.
1: Right. Doing Nothing about the it, Nutcracker here. He's been no. excised. And it's, I feel like this, mu- the Nutcracker s- suite must be, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but what the silly disclaimer that you have to sit through at the begin, when you watch this on Disney Plus, they make you sit through about 10 seconds of a disclaimer being on the screen, which, you know, says that there's yeah. going to be hurtful. Material negative portrayals
0: it, yeah. that are harmful, they were wrong then, they're wrong
1: now. But in the interest of, yeah, could, really, what are we even talking well, about? And when, yeah, I'm like, it has to be this part.
2: Well, there's a scene yeah. cut from uh, uh, the later segment,
0: the pastoral, yeah. yeah,
2: the pastoral symphony where they had, oh, a, okay, yeah, they had, but that some was characters done some, during
0: Walt Disney's time, yeah, yeah. If you
2: slow it down, there's a moment where the centaurs are getting ready, and there's one section of it where they've actually zoomed way in and you're only seeing one small section of the actual film
0: okay that's how they got around it i was wondering how they cut out
1: like two characters without
2: yeah you see her prepping her hair and you can tell she's looking at someone but they've completely cropped out who she's looking at
1: oh i must have that didn't click yeah for whatever reason
0: yeah. It's, but yeah, I, I think they are referring to the mushrooms or right. I, I don't think they're referring to the Russian weeds or the, the Russian dandelions or thistles, thistles or whatever yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also the, the weird goldfish, but
2: that goldfish, but, though, she's from Pinocchio.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. It's, yeah. There was,
2: uh, Cleo I think we
0: to talk about that too. Yeah. Oh, Cleo. Oh, yeah.
2: And Pinocchio was out just before this.
0: Yeah. In
1: ni- yeah. I think it was even the same year, right? 1940. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they were working on Bambi and Dumbo during this. And so later on, there's a bit with elephants. You can tell that they were – and all the early water here looks like Pinocchio water. So you can tell that they were
1: cross-pollinating. Right. Oh, we, We'll we get to the water in, in, in the next yeah. part. Yeah. but yeah, it's like the Nutcracker Suite, I'm not sure there's much to say about it. I remember when – What? Oops, everything well, to say
2: about it. <laughs> no, but when I was a kid. Yeah. When I was a
1: kid, I was like, I just want to get to Mickey and the Dinosaurs. And so I would sit through this part, but it's not like I would fast forward or anything. But the whole time I would be thinking, next is Mickey and after that is the dinosaurs. But no, yeah. uh,
2: For me, this was my favorite book come to life. My grandmother used to read us a 1920s book called The Bam Clock Fairies. And if you get a chance, look it up. The book is still out there, probably in more like used bookstores. But there's all these little fairies that look a lot like these seasonal fairies that are helping this little girl who's late for everything to get back on schedule. And so it's the little bam clock. It'll ring and the fairies come out and help her through her little daily chore. But yeah, so it's a nostalgia thing for me.
0: (laughs) I do like the fairies in this. I don't know if that was Fred Moore or Ward Kimball, who would always draw like the little fairies and eventually they put it into movie. But it's in the segment where we see some of the snowflakes spinning around. Oh, yeah. You're like, are those like? Did they use a computer? Obviously, they didn't use a computer, Computer, but they actually had a rig, like basically clockwork underneath these snowflakes. And then they covered it with like black fabric so you wouldn't see the mechanics. And when they're actually those are actual uh, mechanisms spinning those things as they film them. So really interesting. Yeah, what they're able to do. But yeah, so I think it's fine. The the mushrooms, if if that's the offensive part, I guess they were inspired by the Three Stooges. Like the comedy antic, oh, yeah, man. like just running around. But what's if you watch it, it's like mind-bending because you think that there's like a short, a tall, and then the normal-sized mushroom, and yeah. you're trying to watch it, and then the mushrooms like change size and shape as they run around. Yes, mm-hmm. and so yeah. it's an optical illusion; it breaks your brain a little bit.
1: <laughs> All the mushrooms remind me of, and this will not be the last time I reference this game in the course of our discussion. But the mushrooms remind me from these little. They're enemies in the game Kingdom Hearts, where they're these little mushroom people. And if you do a certain spell in front of them, they will either give you extra health or extra MP or extra items and stuff. But they look just like the little mushrooms in that segment. So that's all I was thinking. of. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, I loved how the fairies would change the seasons because as a kid and being an artsy kid, I could get lost in a spider web any day of the week. It's like just looking at something like that or going out for a walk and watching the dew drops on something or seeing the frost. And for me, I would always go, okay, how would I draw this? How would I paint this? And trying to figure it out in my head when I see it. So it was really neat. It was fun to see when they were changing the fall leaves and then to hear the commentary that they said some of the leaves, they were just going out into the parking lot and drawing whatever (laughs) plants they thought looked good. But then you're watching them as if they were like leaves on a tree and you go, wait, that's like a house plant. That's not a tree yeah. that would change color like that. But you just have <laughs> right. to go, okay, it's Fantasia. Let it be Fantasia.
0: <laughs> yeah. But you're right. And the dew drops on the spider web, the leaves changing color, and then the leaves falling, the stuff on the water, the, the flowers on the water and stuff. It's just very, part of you is just like, how did they do that? But otherwise you're just like, wow, this is really beautiful.
2: And then you stop and think about it. It's, all the math that had to go into that. There's all that beauty and drawing, but then to know that they had to sing this with every beat of the music. Yeah. Because that was the whole point was like being perfectly coordinated with the music. It wasn't just music as a sound effect. It is the music come to life. So it was just to think about everything that went into all those little details is amazing. It's mind blowing. Now everybody's favorite part.
1: Not everybody.
2: (laughs) I love the I
1: love this part, but my favorite part for reasons that will become clear, is actually the next one. But yeah, Sorcerer's Apprentice is probably the most iconic section of the film. And I think, as you say in our notes, Victor, it kind of made Mickey the cultural icon that he is.
0: Yeah, it certainly relaunched his career. We, we think of Mickey as like this juggernaut that's always been popular. But by this point in the late 30s, he wasn't he was like a black and white, goofy cartoon character. and But this really elevated him. They redesigned his character, actually gave him pupils for the first time, made him more 3D, gave him more of a personality than just getting in Pete's business all the time. <laughs> but yeah, and so it's it, from that perspective, it's an important cultural touchstone. But I think when they did Fantasia 2000, they just lifted this right out of this movie and put it into Fantasia 2000. Which is what the idea was, is that Fantasia would be taking bits and pieces from previous Fantasias, adding new stuff and things like that. But this is this is really impressive cartooning going on here.
2: Yeah, this is Mickey's first modern workup and making him more childlike.
0: Yeah, because some of the early Mickey cartoons are, are very adult in nature. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs>
1: yeah, he he definitely went through some major all like Mickey as we know him now is a very different character from what he was in his initial outings. Yeah, and but even the the outfit that he wears in this segment is iconic. Everyone knows it the the pointy hat with the moons and stars on it with the red robe, and and even the the wizard character from the beginning has appeared in other stuff he was in the kingdom hearts video games he's he's been in other video games so yeah yeah,
0: epic mickey epic yeah mickey. epic mickey yeah, yeah Warren inspectors very experimental disney games which i still don't know how they let him make it because <laughs> the whole the, the world of that game is that mickey's accidentally spilled paint thinner on classic disney cartoons and they're all starting to decay and become grotesque abomination. Imagine Sid's toys from Toy Story. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And, and that's all of the Disney characters. Yeah, it completely traumatized our oldest kid when we played it for the first time on the Wii. Oh, wow. Because, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but the, but the whole thing is you can either restore the world by using paint and bring it back to life. And you can paint the world but that's a lot more difficult than just using paint thinner to wipe out the enemies. Ah. But your choices have consequences. And so you'll have to like, see that you choose to defeat this clock tower boss with paint thinner, in which case he becomes hideous and grotesque. Or do you use paint to, bring him back and restore the, the tower, even though it's way more difficult.
1: And speaking wow. of choices have consequences, yeah. that's the message of this yeah. segment. Because <laughs> Indeed. Mickey decides, I'm tired of hauling water to this well for the sorcerer, so I'll enchant this broom to do my bidding. And of course, you have the collect... done done. Da, 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 dun, da, dun, the marching song, uh, yeah. the thing. And of course, it ends up getting out of control when he tries destroying it and it just resurrects into tons of different marching broomsticks. He doesn't know the spell to undo what he's done. <laughs> Everything
0: you just goes out of force it. can't brute force his way out of it. No, yeah. he can't
1: brute force his way out of it. Everything goes out of And yeah, it never occurred to me, Victor, until you mentioned it in the notes, that yeah, the water animation is actually pretty spectacular. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And not only that, the animation of first we get Mickey marching around and directing the brooms and the robe flowing over him as he's making these very fluid movements. But yeah, and then eventually we get so many brooms carrying so much water. Mickey at one point is trying to bail it out of the window. (laughs) But then the room's filled with water. So we get these we get the brooms carrying buckets of water down into the water where they're submerged and then dumping their empty bucket or their full buckets into yeah. The well, which is already underwater. Water. Just the way the water underwater is rendered. Which oh, is, yeah. It's very impressive, yeah.
2: One of my favorite scenes in this is after, in a while, Mickey is going after the broom. And it starts kin- cutting in and out to black and white. Oh, yeah. So yeah, when the magic yeah, yeah, yeah. dies, it goes black and white. And then when it starts coming back, you get the little pop of color. And it's, oh, that was such a, just a simple thing to do, but it just made it really stand out. And yeah. The One part that awesome. always
1: stuck in my head is when they mesh the visual and the note almost perfectly when Mickey is he's floating on the book in the whirlpool. And as he comes around on the whirlpool, you can see Mickey is screaming and the music hits a high note right at that point. So the high note is almost like his scream mm-hmm. <laughs> of terror. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And just his dream where he's throwing the stars and comics stars and around, controlling the universe. His big power moment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Only to wake up and find out that everything's gone horribly wrong. The room is flooded. He's, like, oh, no.
0: Yeah. And uh, then he gets swatted at the end with the broom. With the broom.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: The animator actually- said they used Disney's facial expressions for the wizard at the end there with his little oh. eyebrow oh. raise. They said Disney used to do that all the time when he was questioning something they were doing. a little eyebrow raise. <laughs>
1: That explains why in, in the Kingdom Hearts games, the wizard is actually named after Disney. It's just Disney backwards. Yen. Oh, that's right. Yen Sid. Sid. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, That makes sense. Yeah. And then at the end, we get the, not the first combining of live action footage with the animation because that had been done for 20 years at this point with the Gertie the dinosaur shorts. But, but we get the way, even the way they did this combining the animation and the live action into a single photographic negative. It's pretty cool where Mickey comes out and shakes hands with uh, Stokowski.
1: We had uh, Mickey's voice before? Or was this the first use of his voice?
2: No, because there were talkies before this with Mickey. What was great, though, is his last line that he says is, So long, I'll be seeing ya." So it's, you know, they wanted to make more Fantasia. They were working on more Fantasia. So that was Mickey's, yep, we're going to do more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and Disney, Walt Disney had done the voice of Mickey up until this point. I don't know if he was the voice of Mickey here as well. I would assume so, but I can't look that up just at this moment.
1: So next is my favorite part of the movie because I was and am the dinosaur nut. (laughs) And so as a kid, the Rite of Spring was my favorite. It's Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which actually read somewhere that when this piece of music was first premiered, it actually caused riots. People did did not like this particular piece of music. But I think what they use it for here is pretty incredible. It's set to initially the formation of the Earth that cools from being a molten ball. Actually, first you get outer space and galaxies and all that stuff. And it zooms into the Earth as a molten ball of lava and you have the evolution of early life forms but the real stars of it are the dinosaurs and i think yeah this segment probably influenced how the public perceived dinosaurs until basically jurassic park Yep. yeah and they actually had a very well-known paleontologist as the scientific advisor It was Dr. Barnum Brown of the American Museum of Natural History. He's the guy who actually named, no, he, I'm sorry, he didn't name Tyrannosaurus rex, but he discovered it. So he's a very famous dinosaur paleontologist. And so they had him as the advisor. So for the time, this was like, this was what was known. It may seem quaint to us nowadays, how they portray the dinosaurs, but this was how it was known then.
0: Yeah, I was very impressed coming back to this now because I I don't know if it was this or other things that you saw at the time where like dinosaurs just look completely ridiculous. It wasn't this, though, because the dinosaurs were pretty on model for Mm -hmm. at least the books I had as a kid growing up in the 70s and and 80s, which is where my idea of dinosaurs came from. Just to go back, we do see the creation of the cosmos. And I guess it even involved Hubble, the telescope guy for as another scientific advisor and went up to observatories to view comets and stuff to get the but even the spinning galaxy at the beginning that you fly into and i don't know if this there there's some note i read where they lost the original footage but they had used it in something else and so now the restored version uses the footage from the because disney would they'd reuse stuff from picture to picture but just the spinning thing it looks as good as or even better than the intro of Star Trek, the next generation yeah. where they actually were using like <laughs> ILM computers to render this <laughs> yeah. because they are using that seven layer multiplane camera. You get close up stars that are rotating at you faster than the stars in the background. And yeah, just this, the galaxy that's, it's maybe 15 seconds at the beginning. Your eye now, you just take it for granted. You're like, Oh yeah, I've seen that on all the science fiction shows, but just at the time. And I like the little microscopic organisms too. Yeah. We, there, there's one fish we follow that is as the fish itself evolves to walk on land. Right. It turns into um, a coelacanth
1: so like, and crawls yeah. up onto the land.
0: But we follow it as like its little fish buddies are being eaten by <laughs> weird jellyfish <laughs> and other fish. And, and then it.
2: <laughs> What's fascinating is I wanted to put this in context. What else was going on in the world? And I actually searched paleontology discoveries 1930s just to see what was going to happen first thing that comes up is a smithsonian article about a discovered living fossil and some woman who is just going through fishnets i think she was in africa somewhere
1: south africa south
2: africa yeah and she's just digging through and she comes across this what is this monster fish i don't even know that's it and it yeah. was just shocked. And it shocked the world just that yep. she had this, oh, wow. this thing was monstrous. And it, it was, looked yep. exactly
1: we like fossils. Yep. Like our,
2: yeah. And our, like our little fish in this show. And I, I'm sure Disney's group was paying attention to that enough to know this is so popular that they had to put it in there because it looks exactly like it. It's got the little fins that look like they could walk on land and everything. It's really neat to see the way they tie it in. And then, again, this is where the Disney artist had the most fun coming up with ways to illustrate things, like the smoke coming out of the volcanoes. They said that they actually dumped cans of paint into water and filmed it and then flipped the film upside down and made it high contrast for them to colorize it into the smoke that comes out the top of the volcanoes. Wow! Yeah, and then the lava... In this behind the scenes footage, they show one guy playing with this vat of mud and bubbling it up with air and stuff. You see these huge popping bubbles of mud, and that was how they came up with their lava bubbles.
1: I thought it had a muddy consistency to it. That makes yeah. total sense. There's a yeah. lot
0: of mud. I just love <laughs> their
2: imagineering, though that's the big mm-hmm. catchphrase with Disney now, that they that has always been there. Always coming up with new ways to make something into a fantastic image.
1: And you could definitely tell, too, how it had even an influence on later animated movies. I don't think The Land Before Time would exist without this segment. No. There's so many visual similarities, even in the way some of the dinosaurs look and the kind of moody atmosphere and the darker colors. One image that seemed to really stick with me as a kid was the extinction scene where all the dinosaurs... March off into the desert looking for water. I mean, their death and march. their death yeah. march. Because I use, and I still have photographs of me doing this. When I was a small child, I would recreate that scene on the floor of our kitchen. <laughs> I would take all my dinosaur <laughs> figures and line them up and have them march across the kitchen as if they were marching into the desert. Aww. So that, for, for whatever reason, that image stuck in my brain as a kid Mm
2: -hmm. and it's interesting seeing the difference between how it ended up in the film and then they actually showed sketches in the making of featurette and the dinosaurs were a lot more real and hard-edged but it looks like they softened them up just a little bit for this so it's like tyrannosaurus rescues the sketch oh my gosh he was frightening looking so it's like they made him a little cuter, I guess you could say, for a terrible lizard.
0: (laughs) No, they do have like their mouths are like kaiju mouths. They have these kind of more sculpted, cartoony looking like mouths and muzzles and stuff. We do get that very kind of shocking battle between the Tyrannosaurus and the Stegosaurus, right? Where the Stegosaurus is like, I'm going to hit you with my tail and then Tyrannosaurus is like, nope, I'm going to break your neck. And that's what they, yeah, and that's very, and then of course as they all as the dinosaurs are all like digging around in the mud trying to find anything to eat or anything to drink and here, they speculate that there are droughts or earthquakes that killed them off. The earthquake scene is very cool, too. You could tell that had a big impact on, especially, it looks, Japanese animators of the 60s and 70s, mm. just the fluidity and the sketchy, not sketchiness, but it looks sketched as the earth is, like, cracking. Right. Yeah, and so then you have all these dinosaurs, basically, and then they don't reference our current extinction theory, which is an impact from an asteroid or comet is what probably killed off right. the th- food supply and made life impossible for anything that weighed more than a couple of kilograms. But
1: yeah, that theory, well, that wasn't, I think, really developed until the 70s. When, when they, they found
0: the, the, impact, the impact crater, crater probably...
1: Actually, before that, they had found the layer of iridium in the Earth's crust. Oh, okay. oh, okay. Very high okay. concentration of iridium right around the time the dinosaurs go extinct. And they're like, there's only really one way we could get this high concentration of this element, and that's if a really ma because it's common in meteors. And so oh. a massive enough meteor hit the earth and created the basically ob- was obliterated itself into this fine cloud of dust. We could get this layer of this unique element in the earth. And yeah, it's still debated today. It's not like an ironclad theory. Everyone agrees the meteor had something to do with it. The debate is more like Was the meteor the one silver bullet thing that killed them? Or was it simply the straw that broke the camel's back? Like that they were, or the dinosaurs back in this case. Because they were having (laughs) some, there were other environmental factors going on, including volcanic eruptions and stuff, which they kind of reference in this. Yeah. But yeah, I just love this segment. And because it's dinosaurs and you can't go. <laughs>
0: no. Yeah, we we don't get any mammals. i no, seem to remember, yeah. like mammals coming in here. But then I think I may have been confusing it with one of the Ice Age movies or something. But they have Archaeopteryx,
1: a, the quote unquote first bird yeah. of it. Some dinosaur ambushes it and it flies away.
0: And I read that was a conscious decision that Walt Disney said, hey, we could have mammals coming out and take it all the way through mankind. And mm-hmm. they're like, no, don't don't, don't go, go there
1: because it's still yeah. controversial and. They didn't want to touch that. But after this, we actually get and I almost forgot to put it in our outline, the intermission jam session. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So they say, well take a fifteen minute Deems come out and like, Well, take a 15-minute intermission. And I was like, oh not- no,
1: is it really 15 uh, minutes? And then
0: In some in some movies, like when you watch them, I don't know if it's Doctor Zhivago or some of the mm-hmm. old movies. They actually had like whole overtures. Well, they're not overtures, but intermission pieces written. So you get the full. Yeah, Yeah. you get the full intermission now if you watch. But this one, no. It's they just go to the RKO Radio Picture screen and then they're back in a few minutes. And so I came running back in. I was like, Oh no, are they are they going to make us watch the tune-up again? (laughs) And they do a little of that. And then they start doing this little jam session where they're like working in themes from Takata and Fugue, they're working in themes from the Pastoral Symphony, and you're like, Hey, this is neat, but just the musicians just sitting there goofing off until they look over and they're like, Oh, here comes here comes the man, you gotta cool it.
2: It was nice to hear them cut into popular music of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Getting to more of that jazz swing, big band sound.
0: Yeah. So it was a really nice intermission. And then Deem says, Oh, I was running around the studio a lot and I ran into probably the most famous Disney character of all, or one of the hardest working Disney characters of all, the soundtrack. <laughs> and awesome. he brings them out. Yeah. And it's, if you've spent any time looking at, as I'm looking at right now, audio waveforms in the yeah, which we get that from oscilloscopes. That's how we originally viewed electricity and any sort of energy like audio. And so we get this really cool vertical kind of oscilloscope. Read out as different as the soundtrack shows what different instruments look like. But I can imagine for someone with synesthesia, this would be like, you would either say, yes, that's it exactly, or no, this is not. But we do get some really... Uh, they all hit it on the mark know, really for cool. me,
2: the colors and the sounds yeah. and the shapes. It was like, yeah, especially the little raspberry when he drops oh, it. Oh yeah, it like,
1: farts. drops oh, it yeah. the first thing yeah. you know, it does, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, and what I like too is that you're watching this vertical things, but because it's 1940 and they haven't invented perfectly like sterile digital sound there's like little pops there's a little dust pop showing up in the line uh-huh. as it's sitting there which is which I thought was a nice t- touch to. you're listening to a vinyl record and just visualizing these little pops and the bassoon comes out and players and they sh- it's very rounded and red and then deem says okay now let the other shoe drop which everybody's waiting for is the bassoon to play the really no so <laughs> <laughs> show that i just thought that was like a really nice if you were still getting a drink in the lobby or using the bathroom and hadn't made it back in you might miss that but you wouldn't miss the the feature but it it gives a little buffer for people coming back mm-hmm. into the show after calling their broker to see if the great depression is over uh, or not yeah
1: oh, or whatever they would do and i wanted time. to ask about this cuz this this wasn't in the intermission it was but it was in one of the interludes before where like some guy his like his instrument falls over and there's a lot of awkward laughing. Was that an accident that they just kept in the movie or I think
0: that was intentional. It was the tubular bells guy. Yeah. Like the, the, the chimes, chimes guy. Yeah.
1: The Chimes guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looked like a mix of it both. It might have happened. <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't it seem have... like it, it serves any purpose. And I was like...
0: <laughs> "Was Yeah, it might have happened during one of the rehearsals. And they said, oh, that'd be funny. Let's put that in the movie. Or
1: that was my theory. Yeah. Because
2: even Deems yeah. looked surprised. Yeah. He was yeah. thrown off like, what's going on? Everybody looks <laughs>
1: awkward. <laughs>
0: I'll have to look that up. Yeah, when Stakovsky was recording this, it was really interesting the way he would have people... Come into the studio at midnight because he wanted all the musicians to be like really wired and stuff. And so he would record from like midnight to 3 a.m. Whoa. These sessions. Yeah. And yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Like I said, if you start to go down the rabbit hole with this, yeah. like there's a lot of really yeah. good trivia. So I'm very envious of your, your commentary DVDs <laughs> and featurettes.
2: Oh it was like <laughs> the one reason why I switched over a lot of my VHS tapes that I had bought like pre kids to the DVDs was. They all came with commentaries from behind the scenes. And growing up, I always wanted to work for Disney. So it was my way of feeling like, oh, I'm like part of the gang. Get to meet the yeah, artist. Get the inside yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So next we get so- Beethoven's Sixth, which is the Pastoral Symphony, which they have set to kind of Greek mythological visuals. And I caught like yeah. a few almost like – visual cues that would be used later in the Hercules movie. Mm-hmm. I know. So yeah. like Zeus himself was pretty much identical to the He's way he was ripped torn
0: Zeus in, in the Hercules movie.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and little Pegasus. Pegasus. Yes. Yeah yep. the big Pegasus looks almost exactly like the way he looks in Hercules. Yeah, I
0: thought and, that was And neat. one of the fawns may have grown up to be Sid, or whatever they. call
1: Oh, Phil? <laughs> Phil, yeah. Phil, Phil, Phil. that's it, yeah, not Sid. Yeah. He, he's like a Sid, though. He seems like a Sid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, Sid, Phil. But no, in, in this, yeah, the Pastoral Symphony is about living in the country and stuff, and they even acknowledge that we set this in Greek mythology because we thought it would be more interesting, and it is, and this is, I think, the first place where they had to be aware of the Hayes office, because this was post code ah yeah originally the centerettes their the centaurs girlfriends they referred to them as the centaurettes, they didn't get their little garlands that covered them they were completely topless the entire time and they quickly said we need to dress them up a little bit and the centaurs themselves looked a little bit more physically imposing too as I understand before they now they look like there's a Warner Brothers cartoon called the Dover Boys at pimento University and if you haven't watched this Warner Brothers cartoon from the 40s it's Because it's not on any of the compilations. It doesn't have Bugs Bunny in it. But it's probably one of the most masterful Warner Brothers cartoons. But it's these very square, proper, like, college lads from the 20s. They're very clean-shaven. And they run around and they try to save their girlfriend. And that's what the centaurs look like in this. They've been, (laughs) like, sanitized and cleaned up. And they look like preppy 1940s college kids. (laughs) I
2: expect them to have
0: football (laughs) jerseys. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
2: It's funny. One uh, of the animators says, the one thing we did that we wish we didn't do was when we were trying to get the the walk and the march for the centaurs, we were just out there dancing around pretending like we were horses. And he goes, we could have just got a real horse and had it (laughs) dance around for us and we would have had much better movement of their legs. because, like they look so clumpy and heavy to us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned the horses walking, the centaurettes. Very interesting. And this is one place where I wish that I, I would have gone back and rewatched it like frame by frame, but I think I would have gotten strange looks from my family it's because the centerettes, when they walk towards the camera, they're like, they're doing that 1940s model, not really runway walk, but like that hip swiggy. And then, Oh, it is so Vogue like, and McCall from
2: the forties.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then you could see the animators realizing, wait, they have hind legs too. We need to animate. And so you could see them. I don't know if it's if it works or not, because like I said, it didn't go back. But like them walking, very hip swinging, but then the hind legs following along. And so it's something to, to to check out again. But, yeah, I think this is probably like my favorite, one of my favorite segments. I like the music the most Stravinsky in the previous one. Frank Zappa, the rock musician and guitarist, was said to have been very influenced by Stravinsky. And I think it was that actual <laughs> Fantasia thing, because you can hear a lot of right, of Spring and Frank Zappa's music, but Stravinsky himself wasn't... He was upset at the way that Stokowski... Because Stokowski would edit and shorten and rearrange some of the music is to make it fit the animation better, and he was the only one of the composers on this who was still alive at the time and apparently didn't like all the changes that uh, Stokowski had made, but Beethoven didn't have that problem because he was... (laughs) Long day! Like, roll over (laughs) Beethoven. No, but yeah, and so we get the cherubs flying around helping the centaurettes get ready the fawns the the pegasuses which which i thought were really nice yeah and then the centaurs and we get the love story between the blue centaur and the blue centaurette who are lonely and then you know the pegasus or the uh, cherubs bring them together and throw rose petals everywhere so it's very nice and then probably two of my most favorite animated characters in this, just the way they're animated, is Bacchus or Dionysus and his little donkey friend (laughs) or donkey unicorn. I don't know. I think he's a donkey unicorn. Yeah. And just the way that they, you could tell the animators just had a blast animating Bacchus because, of course, he's drunk when he comes in and only gets drunker throughout the (laughs) folly.
2: (laughs) Couldn't even his throne, he was so drunk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and, and it's just the way, that's another thing where if you could watch it frame by frame, just those two characters falling over each other, falling over everyone else in the scenery. And, yeah, it's amazing. And then we get the other gods coming in later, like Zeus and Apollo and Hephaestus and all of them, or Vulcan. And, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, there's a lot going on in this one.
2: My favorite part of this is the Pegasus. I was always a horse lover, still i am a horse lover. And just watching them fly and the way that they had them leaping over clouds, even though they don't have to leap, but it's just, oh. It all just works so well. And then to have that final splash down into the water and they swim like swans.
1: Yeah. Just the way the the water would
2: spray. Oh, beautiful. Yeah.
1: Their movement, they kind of combined like horse-like movements with swan-like movements. I thought that was beautiful when Mm -hmm. they land in the water. I was like, yeah, that." I I had to pause it and watch it again. I was like, that (laughs)
2: Mm was very
1: good.
0: And there's like little story elements, too. There's a little black sent Pegasus baby who's he's not as graceful as the other ones. And then at the end, all of his siblings basically do cannonballs into the water. And you're like, oh, no, he's going to mess this up. And he does like the most graceful landing into the water (laughs) you can imagine. And yeah, in terms of like birds, there was another segment that they actually cut for time, fully animated, fully scored on the Claire de Lune by Debussy, I think, which was basically two herons flying around and in the moonlight and it made it into a i think make my music as a set to different music but i'm glad that they cut that because we get like you said the really graceful flying of the of the of the centaurs in this Mm -hmm. and then of course zeus being a jerk and just zapping everybody with lightning bolts and and stuff and making poor bacchus run around and fall into the wine and what I, what I love about that is eventually Zeus gets tired of doing yeah. that and just, I'm going to take a nap, And but he still has all these leftover lightning bolts that he's just kicking off the cloud or picking up from behind his pillow, and yeah. even Hephaestus has one and, and is, oh, I'm just going to throw this one myself, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah.
1: It shows like the, I'm like, yeah, that seems accurate. That's like the sort of mean pettiness of a lot of the
0: Greek. But it does, the way it ties to the storm, because at the end of a really good storm, you get just the last few flashes of lightning, and then you get the rainbow, which... Bacchus realizes he can drink and yeah. the Pegasus <laughs> just realized they, can, they can ride on. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like that. That, that, I think that's, it's one of my favorites and the whole thing's good,
1: but mm-hmm. I like this one. Probably the one that was probably my least favorite as a kid was Dance of the Hours. I don't know why, <laughs> for whatever reason, it just didn't click or connect with me as a kid. What about you guys?
2: It was I, goofy. I,
0: yeah. <laughs> I don't remember liking it as much as I liked it this time. And coming where it does right before Night on Bald Mountain, it's like that that aperitif or that palate cleanser that you need. And it is very like 1930s, where it's like, oh look, dancing ostriches, and there's the fat hippo trying to do ballet. Yeah. And that's that's like how I approached it before. I was like, oh great, but just this broad shtick thing, this broad comedy. But if you watch it, I watched it now, and like just looking at the animation. And approaching with fresh eyes, I still don't like the ostriches. I think they look a little clunky. But when the hippo comes up out of the thing and then when the alligators, when Ben Alligator, the main alligator prince comes out and he's trying to dance with the hippo and they do some really cool perspective things. There's one where the hippo lady runs to the extreme back end of the frame and then jumps and you see her kind of coming towards (laughs) the frame, crushing the alligator. There's a lot of really nice. And then the elephants come in because this is probably right when they were doing Dumbo and you can see shades of the pink elephant thing from Dubbo sequence in here. And then eventually the ostriches, the elephants, the hippos, the alligators are all like running around. The alligators are trying to run off with all the other animals. And yeah, it was, (laughs) and they actually used real ballerinas for reference models in this because it is a ballet. And apparently they were able to find a heavier actress to model as the, the hippo as well, because that was a bit of a, Rarity back then.
2: The animators were talking about this and said that they it really was intended to be a, a satire on ballet, just to be as real as possible and funny as possible. And then they one animator said that this was the perfect piece of animation in marriage to the background and music. And after I heard him say that, I went and watched it again. And you literally watch a full day happen. And everything Mm -hmm. that's happening throughout the day is in tune with the sound of the music, the color of the background, So the, the waking up to then things getting a little shady at night, and then the way it finishes. And he was just... He said it was his perfect piece of animation. He said, there's nothing better than this.
0: Just the cartooning here. It's some first rate cartooning. Of course, you listen to the music now. And if you've listened to novelty music from the sixties, yeah. all you hear is Alan Sherman's Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, yes. <laughs> which is you know, this, the kid writing his note to his parents back from right, yeah. But then you get the, thut, 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 as all the crazy stuff is happening. And yeah, it's something that I, I didn't really appreciate as a kid but I could I like it now just uh, uh, appreciating like the animation and the cartooning and stuff that's behind it all the alligator the main alligator ballerina you just look at the way he's his body contorts and he moves and the fluidity and yet yeah. it's really impressive he
1: almost seemed like a Warner Brothers character in a way <laughs> if that makes sense yeah.
0: yeah yeah there was a lot of yeah squash and stretch going on with him
2: <laughs> I loved when he was twirling the hippo. Yeah, <laughs> it's like leaning yeah. back as far as you can to hold her and then twirl her around. Such a contrast in size.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And from there we go. Deems comes out again and tells us this one might be a little scary for the kids and it might completely give them nightmares. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. Because no, yeah. <laughs> And that gets back to this wasn't really meant for kids. And most animation at the time wasn't it wasn't considered a kid's thing. Until maybe sometime after the baby boom happened, which is still in the future, when this movie's being made. So, yeah, and so you, you can have this giant demon raising all these skeletons and ghosts up out of the Night ground. Night on Bald and,
1: Mountain, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you think, like, it's funny. Like, I don't think this really scared me as a kid. And I was a sensitive kid. But for whatever reason, Night on Ball Mountain did not frighten me. I don't remember being frightened by it but I, I think maybe because maybe also because of how it ends because it transitions into the ave maria
2: but watching that demon play with the souls especially the ones oh, he's yeah. dancing in his hand
1: right Man, uh,
2: as a catholic adult now you look at that and go oh lord have mercy yeah. on me and then <laughs> he crushes
1: them after having them yeah. dance for him he just squashes them like insects
2: yeah. And then you see them yeah. morph from beautiful women dancing into animals, yes. into demons. Animals, and then he just yeah. throws them into the fire. I'm done playing yeah. with you now.
1: Yep. Yeah. It was it's perfect yeah, to we, watch we on all, a... all
2: souls day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: we, we do cover most of the, uh, you know, the cardinal sins here. Um, you know, the deadly, uh, are, are represented in some way. The first section where you get the spirits coming up out of the ground, it looks a little dated now mm-hmm. because they're not animated. They're just drawings that they've applied like some warping through like the camera lens and stuff to as they come out. But, but then once they do start getting animated and they're animated with this, either it looks like chalk or maybe white charcoal, charcoal and gouache and stuff. And it's definitely very striking. And of course the demon, they refer to him as satan in the intro but later you see him referred to as like cernabog Chernabog,
1: yeah because he, Turnab- he was also a boss in kingdom hearts one in the final world yeah fight this guy yeah
0: it was briefly in an episode of once upon a time disney's oh,
1: really? once <laughs> upon a time
0: show <laughs> yeah but no animated very powerfully and you could like sinewy and his face is cruel and malevolent and I had read somewhere that at one point they had brought Bella Lugosi in, who was famous for playing Dracula at the time, to try and be a model. But he just wasn't what they were looking for. But yeah. And of course, now the music night on Ball Mountain was given a disco treatment in the 70s by Miko, who, who was the one who was giving all these <laughs> classical music, like disco treatments. He did like a fifth of Beethoven, which is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He did the disco version of Star Wars. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. He disco version yeah. of this, too. So, yeah, it's another one of those things where, like, the music has become so popular that it could take on different connotations than maybe it had at the time. But, yeah, definitely very powerful. And then at the end, you have, like, basically the jump scares, creatures flying into the camera, like faces, weird faces. You get naked harpies, which... I guess they didn't care about the haze code then, <laughs> right. you know? or
1: they're just—they're <laughs> literally throwing it in the face of the haze code. They're like, "There you go, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, harpy bosoms." There you go, yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's—and then the what I love about this, we could talk about this, is you hear that first church bell, mm-hmm. and certainly in, in folklore, the sound of church bells dispels demons. And so he looks—the look on his face—it's not fear; it's more like an annoyance at the first one is, oh, this again, they're going to put me back. And then the second, as the church bells ring more and more on the demons, it does become more of like fear and, and pain. And I better get back into my mountain here Mm-mm. before things get real. Yeah. Just that sequence. That I think that's my, probably my favorite moment in the entire piece is when that first church bell starts to ring.
2: It was classic. Shortly after rewatching this, I'm on Instagram and come across a meme where it shows Mary as terror of demons, where she's got her little hammer and a demon in her hand, ready to slug oh, yeah. it. I love those images of Mary. But it says, where Mary is present, the devil is absent. And that was St. Louis de Montfort. And I was like, "Yup." And then what happens? Yep. You get the Ave Maria. And
1: <laughs> yeah. And what they talk about in the intro, this, the Ave Maria being this message of hope that dispels darkness and despair, I couldn't help but thinking, like, what's going on in the world? At this time. In 1940, yeah. not only is World War II going on, but it's the low point for the Allies.
0: Yeah, the Battle of Britain had been going uh, on. France uh, is out, they're yeah. done.
1: America isn't in in it yet, but so will be. And at this point, the Axis is ascended. Like that message of hope in the midst of darkness was probably a message that people needed to hear.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting. Choice too. we We'll get to the music. This is, I think, the only point in the movie where we hear like human voices is the choral here. And then we have the soprano solo singing the Ave Maria, but it's not in Latin. It's not the German version that that Schubert would have used. It's not. There's another English version he wrote, but this is actually written specific. The lyrics were written specific for this movie by Rachel Field, who I guess I don't know much about her, but she was a children's author or something. But she wrote three verses for this. You can look them up, look up Rachel Field, Ave Maria, Fantasia, and you'll get all three verses. We only hear one here, but it's pretty sound hymn. And I'd, I'd like to see this kind of come back more and, and people uh, adopt it as, as well. But yeah, music, musically, it's very interesting. Beautiful soprano voice here singing it. And it's all one continuous shot. It's not, we don't get animated characters running around doing antics or bright flashes of color it's a processional a procession
1: right? yeah people with yeah. lighted candles very simple but very moving and very powerful
2: mm-hmm. the animators <laughs> talked about how difficult this shot was to do that it was six continual days and nights filming non-stop wow. and that it ran the entire 154 feet of the studio to get Yeah, all of-
0: because you would have the all the painting like laid out like that one continuous shot where they're walking that that isn't OK, put in the next frame, put in the next frame. It's one big painting and you have this huge rig tracking across it. And it took them four tries, right? Did they Because the first try, and it took them like three days or whatever to do this first try. And it, they didn't like it, so they tried it again but had the wrong lens on the camera. Ugh. Tried it a third time, and there was an earthquake that like jostled Ugh. the thing a little bit. It just threw it off just enough, and they had to start all over. They tried it the fourth time, and it was, again, one of these. It took them a full day to, to do the shot. And it was literally the day before it was premiering in New York. So they took the film canister, jumped on a plane, flew from Burbank or wherever to to New York, the editor there spliced it into the film four hours before the premiere. Wow. Yes, at least that's the story. But yeah, so it is, yeah, now you're like, okay, I just have the drawing on my computer and I'll just nudge it over a little bit (laughs) each time. But no, there it is. It's actually like with this huge rig. So any sort of jostling or anything would make it look jittery and yeah.
2: And it's so beautifully done. The transition that they did From the trees and then going across the bridge made me think of, I think it was St. Catherine of Siena talked about Christ being the bridge across the water. And then here again, we have the three Gothic arches symbolizing the Trinity. And so you're getting that very strong Catholic theme. What was crazy to hear was that's not the original visual for the ending of this. Is that it was supposed to end where the trees actually morph into a cathedral and you zoom in closer and closer onto a stained glass window until you are face-to-face with an image of Mary in Christ. And it was funny to hear the commentator say, that concept wasn't going to work. But it worked much better that they went out into the pureness of nature. And what's more hopeful than the rising of a sun? And I went, dude, that's still Catholic because a good (laughs) cathedral is facing the rising sun, representing Christ. The only flaw was letting it fade to black instead of having it go all white. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I guess Disney was afraid of being too overtly like religious or specific religion and stuff. But yeah, and so we do end the film, and the film ends right there. Mm. There's no more cutting back to the orchestra. There's no Deems Taylor saying, wow, wasn't that great? folks?" <laughs> 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 that would have you know, undercut it it, it. it ends, and you're like, okay, roll credits. Nope, no credits. Mm. On Disney+, Plus. you get the alternate language yep. credits that you get at the end of things. Mm-hmm. But no, that's the end. Boom.
2: Yeah. It's amazing yeah, to think like, at the yeah. time of turmoil in the world, they needed to just end there. I w- again, I wish it would have gone to white. Because you would feel just such a sense of hope that there, Christ is coming. There's something better out there in this world, and that would have just been like, oh, a breath of fresh air for people.
1: Yeah, just a, a phenomenal film and visual experience all around. I don't think I, I, I know there's the sequel, which I again I've only seen it like once or twice, but I don't think they've really
0: can't make it today yeah they call it like woke tasia or something now right? oh. no i'm just kidding. but <laughs> no it's just putting a thousand artists working on this for two years and the top musicians there's just it can't be made today <laughs> fantasia 2000 had some good bits mm-hmm. the rhapsody in blue yeah section of fantasia uh, 2000 yeah, is excellent right. that's good they, yeah they show that in our kids music class and introduce them to the instruments and jazz music and stuff like that but gershwin but it's even that, where it has a really cool story of these four characters coming together with the music and stuff, but still, it's very cartoony, animated. The the lines are very clean. You don't get that sense that actual artists touch this with their hands that you do with Fantasia.
2: Oh, to me, that yeah. one was the pinnacle. I, I, the Rhapsody Oh, the
0: Rhapsody in Blue? Oh
2: my goodness! Yeah. First yeah. of all,
0: it's the best part of Fant. Yeah, it's the best part of Fantasia two thousand. I yeah. played
2: clarinet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that music fits perfectly. With the era that and the images also fit perfectly yeah, with they're, the era that they were the demonstrating. Yeah. yeah. So it just to me it felt like a newspaper of the era come to life. You, you yeah, like I was referring like more that. to
0: the production. It's very clean, whereas Fantasia, you could see the fingerprints on like the sculpt the yeah. sculpture more more than you can with the digital when everything's touched up and yeah. run through.
2: I do still love cleanup. finding mm-hmm. brushstrokes in old Disney movies. Ah. It just makes them so much more real.
0: Yeah. And then we also get Space Whales. We get Donald Duck as Noah. Donald Duck as Yeah,
1: I think that was probably my favorite part was the Donald Duck
0: part. (laughs) Yeah, and we get Penn and Teller introducing the Sorcerer's Apprentice. So it's very uneven. You get Steve Martin. I did Quincy Jones coming in. I did like that. Speaking of uh, people with synesthesia. But yeah, Disney wouldn't do another fantasia they would do popular music things like make my music yeah. and melody time and then they were in talks in 1946 with salvador Dali to do an animated short and even as many times as he would come to the studio he and walt just couldn't agree <laughs> on it enough eventually it was finished in the late 90s and you can see it on some of the disney short collections but it's definitely not the not the same as a fantasia
1: so what do you think? Do we, do we have any final thoughts on this movie or do anything we forgot uh, to cover?
0: I think, I think we should give the final word to, to Walt Disney. He, he said, uh, you know, Fantasia is timeless. My parenthetical or 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It may run after I'm gone. Fantasia is an idea in itself. I can never build another Fantasia. I can improve. I can elaborate. That's all.
1: Yeah. From the master, I, I think that's a perfect point in which to end our discussion. But before we do, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible, including David C., Stephen B., Daniel S., Hillary G., and Joel S. Their generous donations allow us to continue to create the secrets of movies and TV shows and all the shows here at StarQuest. And you can join them at sqpn.com slash give. And now we'd like to hear from you, our listeners, about Fantasia you can send us an email at secrets at sqpn.com or by commenting on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel or on Twitter. And you can visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And until next time, Victor Lambs, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Fantasia. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Catherine Laffrey, thank you as well.
2: Thank you. Love seeing it all again.
1: And once again, I'm Thomas Salerno. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to
0: enjoy. The Secrets of Secret Art. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at starquest.fm art. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, Check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz.
1: That's moonshadowstudios.biz.